looking, searching, hoping, trying to find a new Bible for about five years. And she ordered one for me and got it for him for my birthday, and it was really good. I liked it. It's a little bit bigger than I wanted, but that's okay. It's called a preaching Bible, and it's designed so that all the verses kind of pop out at you. So like there's verse 4, and then there's verse 5, and it's real easy. The verse numbers are in blue, so if I'm trying to find verse 5, it's right there. And so I was getting ready and doing things uh, to get ready for a lesson. Uh, I don't know, it was last week or whatever it was. And I realized something. I had read through it and looked over it and glanced at it. This is the first time I have ever seen this. The words of Jesus are not in red. I didn't really like that too much. Not for any particular, it doesn't matter. But just because you get so used to looking for things that are in red. But it's really good for presenting, I think. So, you know, if you're having to just try and find something, uh, you know, that, that, that's going to work out pretty well. So, tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about writing, handwriting. Most of you probably remember handwriting in school. Those curls and those cues and those... Letter goes this way or that way. And as you get older, you don't write near as much. We talked in my world history class back with the first beginning of the year, we talked about the printing press. And I always ask them, I was like, how long do you think it would take for you to write page one of this book? And I'm like, ah, you know, 10 minutes, probably, you know, by the time you put all of it down on a piece of paper. I said, how long do you think it'd take you to write the whole book? And they always look at you and think, I don't even want to try to write the whole book. But writing is something that we can all relate to. Writing is one of the first things that you teach. In fact, before kids even go to school, writing is something that they do. I see Cambry on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, and she can't write, but she has a little book and she takes her and she tries it and she holds it up like she's actually written something. It doesn't mean anything, doesn't say anything, but you see people write. Well, tonight we're talking about handwriting in the book of Daniel. And it might be so that you would have expected the lesson from Daniel to be something else. What's the most famous story in the book of Daniel? And the lion's den is one that most of us probably would relate to more than anything. But I'd have thought, you know, we probably talked about Daniel and the lion's den until we're sick and tired of it. I can tell you this. If one more person ever asked me again, how was the lion's den? I'd probably slap him in the face. (laughs) One of those things you think, good grief. You know, I'm so tired of hearing that. And it's one of those things when people say it. Like it's the funniest thing ever. Like, wow, nobody's ever thought of this one. It's like, I'm 40 and I've heard it times a billion, you know. So, but anyway, it is one of those stories that is, uh, is quite famous. Also in the book of Daniel, you get the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, who were connected to Daniel, by the way. And uh, Daniel will make an appearance in this one as well. But nobody's going to talk, nobody ever talks about this one. So I thought that we might look at this. First of all, a little bit there. This is the 27th book. Of the Old Testament. We are quickly progressing through this. Daniel is the last of the major prophets. 
there's debate as to whether Daniel should be considered a major prophet. And that mostly centers around the length of the book. The book of Daniel is only, I think, 11 chapters. Let me check on that just to be sure. 11 chapters of the book of Daniel. So it's not really a long book compared to Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, those are 40, 50, 60, I don't think he thinks in the 60s, maybe one of them is, but uh, a lot of lengthier books. Um, we're about to get into, after this week, what's called the Minor Prophets. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Major and minor don't mean their skills, their ability. One's more important than the other. It's just measured in length of how long their, uh, the book actually is. But we'll get into those Minor Prophets starting next week, and there's some things that I'm sure you've not thought of in a long time. There's some books in there that you accidentally turn to when you're trying to turn to something else. That'd uh, be the best way to describe some of those. But tonight, Daniel is the 27th book of the Old Testament. Uh, but it's actually a, uh, if we, I've been watching something here lately, kind of watching and research and studying it myself, about the order in which these books actually were written. And Daniel was a little bit later having been written compared to some of the others. But again, that's not what the arrangement uh, is about. Uh, it contains several different stories, uh, including Daniel in the Lion's Den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, it talks a little bit about some end-of-time type things, but this is the one we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, King Belshazzar sees an invisible hand written, writing on the wall. So let's go ahead and start talking about this right now. And I'm going to ask you this question before we even begin. How many of you have ever heard the statement made, the writings on the wall? You've ever heard that? What does that mean when somebody says the writings on the wall? Something's going to happen. Something, there it is. Something's going to happen. It's kind of right there, right? Writing is on the wall. Now I can see it. All right. Writings on the wall. There you go. All right. So when we think about that, though, much like a lot of different things, a lot of people don't know this, there are so many sayings that come straight from the Bible that people utter every day and don't think anything about it. You know, when you say writings on the wall, that's something that people say all the time. You could probably walk down the street and find any number of people and say, have you ever heard the writings on the wall? And everybody says, yeah, I've heard that. I don't know what it means. Have you ever read Daniel chapter 5? Maybe, I don't know, but that's where it comes from. And that's where this book or this story comes from. And we're going to talk about that here this evening. So let's go into uh, a couple of things to start with. I know last week, or I'll say last week, it was two weeks, but y'all just bear with me. The last time that we talked about, we kind of wrapped up, as it were, the captivity of the, uh, the children of Israel. And uh, a lot of those different prophets, we went through it as a, in, a, in a way that would show them being taken captive, uh, them sort of sad, lamenting what they had seen, and then also the return back to the promised land. Well, Daniel is set in this period as well. Uh, what takes place in Daniel happens in Babylon. Some names that I'll mention tonight will sound uh, familiar to you uh, as well. So just a couple of, I guess I would say, circumstances before we begin. Well, first of all, in the third year of King Jehoiakim, remember that guy? We loved saying his name that night, King Jehoiakim. Jerusalem fell to Babylon, and Babylon was the, led by King Nebuchadnezzar II. Uh, we talked about how a lot of the top, I don't know, what the, what's the word, tier, the, the significant people, people that had 
marketable skills, maybe this is the way you would say, were taken to Babylon first. They left some of the people that weren't as important back in Judah. But Daniel was included in this group of people that were <clears throat> taken into Babylon. Daniel serves the king. Uh, he, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, are allowed to worship in their own way. Daniel serves Nebuchadnezzar as an interpreter of dreams. And in many ways, they had quite a bit of freedom, as it were. Uh, This shows you the significance of these people, uh, first and foremost. But like any king, Nebuchadnezzar will ultimately die. And kingdoms are at their most burdensome, I don't know, that's vulnerable sort of people right there, when the king dies. Because the question is, who's going to replace the king? It may be somebody even better. could be somebody even worse. Everybody has that. In government, presidents and governors, mayors, we have that issue. When your boss retires, who's going to replace the boss? Will it be a better one or a worse one? Anytime there's a change, there's vulnerability that is included with it. And you may get something that's not quite as good as what you have. Well, after Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if anybody remembers this story, or not, but he sort of goes insane, uh, as it were, and he ultimately dies. There's a power struggle, and after a while, Belshazzar uh, is who takes power. Well, by, right about the time this is happening, in Daniel chapters 7 and 8, God reveals to Daniel that the Babylonian Empire was about to be destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. Now, when this happens, of course, Daniel's sort of serving this role to Nebuchadnezzar, and throughout the reign, or had served it through uh, Nebuchadnezzar, but now he's kind of drifting a little bit there as well. And throughout this reign of Belshazzar, Cyrus and the Persians continue to get closer and closer. So while Nebuchadnezzar was in charge, things were pretty good in Babylon, but the new king loses some of the ground. The Persians are getting closer and closer and closer. And so throughout this closer territory, Babylon's territory is shrinking and Persia's territory is growing. There are people that will watch that kind of stuff and notice this could be a problem. But just like we talked about in the book of Jeremiah when, uh, when he wrote or he told Baruch what to write, the question is, did he go and tell the king? If you go and tell the king that there's somebody getting ready to attack and there's a good chance they're going to defeat you, what risk are you running when you tell that to the king? Kill the messenger. They may kill the messenger. What other risk might you be running there? How do you know this? Yeah. You connected to them? Are you an enemy here? There's a lot of risks that are there. And you don't want to go tell the king, it's, it's your fault, they're getting ready to kill, they're, we're getting ready to be taken over, because you're in a sense blaming the king right there. So this king is Cyrus. And so this Persian army under Cyrus is right on the outskirts of Babylon. And they're about to attack. And while this happens, Belshazzar has a feast. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of a feast. But I kind of have these images of a feast taking place. I'm sure it is based on artwork that was done by Dutch painters in the 1600s. But that's what I think about. Everybody's lounging around, eating, drinking, and being merry. By the way, that comes from the Bible. But also, they're not really thinking about other stuff, right? 
If you're having this kind of get together, all you're really thinking about is enjoying your situation. I'm not too worried about what I let tomorrow's problems be for tomorrow. Something else that comes from the Bible there as well. But Belshazzar says, our nation is strong enough. They're not going to fall. I mean, they'll get close. They'll attack. But who's going to defeat us? Well, let's think about this for a second. Babylon, the city. There's the city of Babylon and there's the region of Babylon as well. The outer wall of Babylon is over 70 feet wide. Think about that for a second. 70 feet wide. That's, that's a wide wall. That's a really, so if you think about on a baseball field where the pitcher stands, the home plate, that's 60 feet. So you got 10 more feet further than that. That's how wide the wall is. Are your walls, Leland, your wall is 70 foot wide at the new place? <laughs> Not quite, not quite at all. Most people don't have 70-foot walls. They're so wide that chariots could pass on the wall. Right? Think about that for a second. You could drive on the wall and meet another vehicle driving, and you didn't have to stop to let them go. That's wide, wide wall. Now, not only that, that's the outer wall. The inner wall, the inner city, is protected by three sets of defensive walls, so we got a big wall, and then we got another wall, and we got another wall, and we got another wall, as well as moats. That's that water that goes around the castle. Remember, they all, the bad guys are always just ready to cross the moat. Towers and a fortress with massive walls that are beside the palace as well. If I'm reading this right, there are five walls between outside and the king. Can you see why he wasn't too worried about being defeated? Put a lot of faith in walls, don't we? Sometimes the walls will disappoint you. Anybody who's ever put a fence up to keep cattle in knows that sometimes that'll disappoint you. There was a wall in Berlin for 28 years. 38, 28 years? That was 28, 61 to 89. 28 years. And the whole time it was there, people were crossing it. And people were getting killed crossing it. But those walls that are there... We put a lot of faith in them, but a lot of times they don't really work. Belshazzar put a lot of faith in these walls in and around his community, or in and around his city. So let's talk about what's there. Well, first of all, at this feast, according to what we read here in Daniel chapter 5, a thousand princes, their wives, concubines, are all present in Babylon attending this feast. Who do you think is in this group? Who are these people that he's invited to the feast? The elite. The elite. All right. What kind of person do you think is going to be at this place? Somebody with some money. Somebody with a little money, probably. A little clout, perhaps. Somebody who maybe has connections to. It might be related. Somebody that maybe is tied to him in some other way. Is this the kind of are the people that's there going to tell him good news or bad news what do you think probably good news what happens if you go to this feast and all you do is tell bad news what might happen to the next feast yeah your your ticket must have got lost in the mail somewhere the second time you're probably not going to get to come like if you go to somebody's house and all you do is complain i can't wait for that guy to leave we're never inviting him back so this is the kind of people that are there they're in a celebratory mood and during this feast Belshazzar calls 
for these golden vessels taken from the temple. I'm going to read something here first. Let's see. That's what we want. Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Jill, do you care to read that one? What's that first one? Belshazzar. And then in verse 4, it says they drank the wine, praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So these vessels had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. They were taken as spoils of war. They were taken as something valuable, something you could set up and it reminded you of your conquest. Anybody ever went on a trip somewhere and bought a little something? Maybe a magnet that hangs on the fridge or something you could set on your desk or on a table. When you see that when you go to the fridge or when you see that when you turn the lamp on or off, what does that little thing remind you of? Where you been. And it's a good memory. You may have spent thousands of dollars and been gone for months and all you got is this little thing. But when you see that, it reminds you of all that fun. And yeah, you can't pick up a steak and bring it home with you, but you got something there that reminds you of. And so those golden vessels, in a sense, were something that reminded them of their conquest. This is what we had. This, we were successful in overthrowing Jerusalem. He says, bring out these golden vessels and we're going to drink from them. Now, here's a couple of problems with that. Those were sacred to the Jewish people. Daniel was an Israelite. He'll come in. He's not here yet, but he'll be in here in a minute. But when they're drinking out of this, I mean, they legitimately won the war. So it's a, it's a legitimate spoil of war. But you, this spoil of war doesn't need to be used in an unceremonious way. That's what we're going to see right here. This is not going to be looked on too properly by a lot of these folks that are there. Let's go a little further. So while they're drinking, while they're having this party, in a place, the Bible says, that was conspicuous and well-lighted where all could see. Conspicuous means it's obvious. Inconspicuous is the opposite of that. If you're trying to sneak into a place, you're trying to be inconspicuous. Conspicuous is it's real obvious. In a place that is well-lighted so all can see. How many all of us probably like a little more light, don't we? You know, you get to that age where you need a little bit more light on, you know, things to be able to see. Well, this place is conspicuous. It's well-lighted. Everyone is going to be able to see. And these fingers, or this finger, I guess you would say, starts writing on the wall. I'm going to assume those are the Hebrew letters of what we see there, I don't know if this is accurate, that's a picture. But in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 5, the letters write, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Uparsa. Now, what does it mean? Well, first of all, seeing something written on a wall is kind of weird. 
And second of all, seeing something that maybe you don't know what it means or you can't translate is even tougher. If they had written go home, then that would have made a lot more sense, right? Oh, God, we'll do that. Right? But it says something that's like, I don't know what this actually is. And so the sentence completes, the hand disappears, and the writing is the only thing that's left. You ever seen something and didn't really know what you've seen and then it was over? You're like, what did I just see? You ever had that? Probably some kind of animal run out in front of you when you're driving. One time Will and I were going, I sent him to Berea to swim practice, swim, learn how to swim. He was really little. This poor mom and dad had a pool and I was just throwing money away right left. But take him to this thing and there's a little animal that ran out on the road in Cartersville. Well, I mean, you can see anything in Cartersville. But we see this little animal run out and I thought, what was that? Because it was squirrel-ish. But it wasn't fat enough for a squirrel, and it was too long to be a squirrel. It's kind of blackish. So I thought, dwelled on it, took will of practice, and sitting there the whole time, and I thought, I think I saw a mink. As a mink, of course, I mean, I guess if you won't see anything here again, it'll be garbage. But I think that's what it was. But the whole time I saw that, and it just ran out the road, and then it ran back. And I spent two hours trying to figure out, like, what did I just see? So imagine you're in this situation. What's the first thing going to pop into your head after this hand is gone? What does it mean? What does it mean? What did I just see? And then it's like, you know, like I said, if it said something that you recognize, what makes this finesse? Ninny? Ninny? Tackle? Parson? Hand? Fingers? Drinking wine? What is happening here, right? Start weighing all these things, and you're like, what did I just see? So the king sees all of this, all right? Let's go to Daniel chapter 5 uh, in verses 5 and verse 6 right there. Leland, do you care to read that? So I feel like this is probably the most accurate description of anything that could have happened right there. The king's countenance changed. What it meant was he went from, man, we're having a good time, to I have no idea what just happened. And I like that said his thoughts troubled him. Right? Now, when I was trying to figure out what a mink was, my thoughts weren't really troubling me, but I was thinking about it. I was weighing all those options. But it said that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. That's like cartoon level stuff, right? You know, when you watch a cartoon. But some of us have probably been in that situation. When I was a senior in high school, the last time I ever hit as a baseball player in a competitive game, we were playing Pulaski County in the regional tournament, and they had a kid who was a Division I pitcher. He threw about 93 miles an hour. And I walked up to the back, and I was a decent player, and I already had two hits that night against somebody else. But he comes up the pitch, and I don't think my knees were knocking, but I was like, what am I about to see right here? We can all relate, right? Have you ever been in a situation where you got a little nervous? Hips shake a little bit, knees shake a little bit. Now, I know this is cartoon level in the description that we have, but we can all relate. It's things that worry us, things that scare us, things that we don't know. 
When you get in your car tonight to leave, your knees aren't going to be shaking. You drive a car every day. That's not really that big of a deal. When you sit down in your church and your pew and talk to people, that's a this was something that was quite different. So the question is, what does it mean? Well, the king seems certainly to be terrified, but he also wants to know what it means. Would you have wanted to know what this meant? Now, there's people in the world that would have said, I probably wouldn't care. But this, for me, it'd be like, I'm not doing anything until we figure out what this means. Why do you think the king would have needed to know what it meant? How does this apply to me? It seems odd that this hand would appear and write on the wall if it was about the waiter, right? This is probably about the king. So what's it mean? All right. Well, he does what anybody would have done. He calls in people to see if they can explain it. Boo, this is verses 7 through 9. Do you care to read that? Stop there for just a second. He's even offering up a prize, which is a really good prize. He's going to put a robe around. You're going to get a chain of gold, and you're going to be the third ruler of the kingdom. So you're not, you know, this is not a little thanks. I appreciate it. This is a valuable prize for whoever's going to do this. Go ahead. So the people that do this kind of thing for him come in, they didn't know. They couldn't tell. They could not figure out what it was. That's worrisome, right? The people that you trust the most can't tell you what it is. That's a little bit of a bit of worry. So the queen will come in after that. This is verses 10 through 12. Lucille, just read verse 10 for me, please. Now we're going to go to the verse 11 there in just a second. But the queen comes in. And this is, when we say queen, this is not his wife. It's probably, his, this is maybe Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Uh, it's somebody who is, uh, this is not his wife. It's somebody who was there when Daniel was there in a powerful spot a little earlier. She comes in and she said, I got some ideas about who it might be. Lucille, verse 11. Okay, you just go ahead and read the last one too. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding and interpreting of dreams and showing of our sentences and resolving the deaths were found in the same Daniel, who the king named Belichick the leader, and let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So they say, uh, there's a guy here, Daniel, the queen says, she said, there's a guy here, Daniel, that used to do this for King Nebuchadnezzar. Not this exactly, but it was the interpret, interpret dreams, kind of tell you what it makes sense. Let's call this guy in 
And, we can t- and we'll see if he can figure it out. It's worth a shot because the people that the king trusted couldn't do it, right? So let's bring in Daniel and see what he has. Now this is the same Daniel who had had a fairly pr- a prominent role under Nebuchadnezzar, but he appears to sort of follow him from grace. Remember the new king? Not as changed from the new king comes in. So let's bring Daniel in, see if he can fix this. And obviously he'll be intrigued by this you know, opportunity to have power and take over a third of the kingdom. You know, he'll like all of this, so they bring him in. So Daniel comes in. If we go to verses 13 through 16, Daniel comes in and is offered the third place in the kingdom. You can see that right here. But in verse 17, Daniel actually refuses the reward. If you look at verse 17, it says, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Why do you think Daniel said pass on the, on the gifts, on the robe, on the chain, on the prize, as it were? He didn't want to make himself feel greater from the king. He wanted God to get the glory. Okay, very good. Absolutely, absolutely. This is not Daniel, it's, it's God. Why else do you think he maybe said, I don't want that? Any other thoughts on why? Well, first of all, Daniel had already sort of seen the fall of Babylon. He had these dreams of what was going to happen. And so this question of what's going to happen, if he knows what's going to happen, he's going to be given control or given partial control over a kingdom that's not going to exist anymore. But more than that, when Daniel first came from, back from Israel to Babylon, he was given a high place. He was allowed to worship freely. He was allowed to be an Israelite even when Israel had been taken over. And so by stepping sort of onto the king's side, by getting the awards and the prizes, He's sort of turning his back on what Nebuchadnezzar had done for him. I think that's part of why Daniel here says, I'll do this, but I'm not doing this for any kind of reward. In verses 18 through 23, I don't have those up there. Daniel sort of fusses at Belshazzar. And he says, when he talks to him there in verse 19, he said, and because of the majesty that your father Nebuchadnezzar had given you, all the peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. If you wanted somebody executed, you could do it. If you wanted somebody kept alive, you could do it. Set them up, knock them down, whatever. You as the king could do it. But in verse 20, Daniel tells him, he says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed or deposed from the kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And so what he's saying right here is Belshazzar had this opportunity to be like Nebuchadnezzar had been. You could have been a good king, but you got all full excited. You got a little bit too big for your britches, right? You like that power that you had. And when he tells him this, he says, what happens here is that you could have been better. But now you're going to be facing something really bad. Your kingdom is about to fall. Let's talk real quick. We're getting, our time is getting away quickly. We'll talk real quick about these terms. This is many, many. Well, first of all, 
What we see here, that means numbered, completed, or finished. Okay, numbered, completed, or finished. Daniel interprets that word to mean God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Numbered your kingdom and finished. The limits of the Babylonian empire have been reached. It's not just Babylon. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, we read the same thing. It says, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. That verse basically is telling you that there have been kingdoms, there are currently kingdoms, and there will be kingdoms, but none of those are going to last forever. King Belshazzar's was no different. Babylon's limited existence can actually be read about in the Bible. You can read about it in Habakkuk. He prophesied about that. Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied about this as well. This was not a kingdom that was destined to last forever. Time on the schedule was up for Babylon and for Belshazzar. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Tekel means to balance. And think about like a balance on a scale in science class. You put one pound on one side, you got to put one pound on the other. If I put one pound here and a half pound there, that'll be balanced out. He says, your kingdom has been weighed in the balance and found wanting. All right? You're a little empty. You ain't got enough right here that you thought that you had. The term of this description typically comes from the practice of weighing money. Money used to always be hard. We don't really deal with that now, but it was hard currency made of metal, copper, uh, gold, silver, something like that. And what they would do, you may know this, they'd shave the edges off of it and they would decrease that value of it just a little. You're holding one of these coins, it doesn't look any different than the one that she's holding. But the reality is it's been shaved off just a little. And I take those shavings and a little bit of shavings will eventually add up to quite a bit. And so he's, in a sense, kind of what he's saying right here is you've sort of <clears throat> shaved a little off the edge here. You didn't keep it the way that your the previous king had kept it. And now you're left wanting. When they measure that coin, there's not as much there as we thought. When they measure Babylon, there's not as much there they thought as well. Who's the ultimate judge? Who's the ultimate judge for us? Yeah. Think about it like a scale. They put you on that scale and you got to weigh this much. And I don't mean how heavy we are. If you got to weigh that much and you don't, you've been found wanting, right? It's like the ancient Egyptians. The Pharaoh his, they had the scales. They put his heart on one side and a feather on the other. Right. And if, he, if his heart didn't weigh less than the feather, he supposedly wouldn't go to the afterlife. Huh. So Interesting. Sure. Absolutely. A parson divided or broken up the word Perez, which is these words are kind of modified. It's hard to translate things from languages that don't use the same letters. But Uparson, this notion of Perez being divided or broken up. It's not that the kingdom would be divided into equal parts. That's not what we're seeing right here. But rather it's broken into pieces, something that can't be fixed. Now, if you if I tear a sheet of paper in half, you can take it back together and it's roughly the same. But if you shatter a piece of glass, if you break one of these windows, can you put that piece of glass back together? That's what they're saying right here. Your kingdom is about to be shattered. It's about to be destroyed. God has purposed that Babylon's days were over. And then well, that's, it shows Babylon, then these, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and then Islam come in. So it just goes to show 
Sure, absolutely. Verse 23, he says, But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Yep. So he exalted himself, you know, making himself greater than God. The next sentence says, You brought out those vessels that were supposed to be used for worship, and you're using them for a party to drink in a, a feast uh, right there as well. In verse 30, if we skip ahead a little bit, the next morning, Cyrus and Persia invade, Babylon's destroyed, Belshazzar was killed there in the process. Belshazzar had an opportunity to know the character and the expectations of God. But as you just said right there, instead he lifted himself up even higher. And for all of this, the writing on the wall was that he was accountable, judged, and found wanting. And for him, his punishment came really quick, right? He read that at night and he was dead the next day. So the question that maybe we put forth to you, and we'll use this as our invitations, we'll have our song here in just a moment, is that, and this is where we go into the preaching part that I was going to do the other night. What about about me? And you are me, is what this is. Well, if we think about it, have we been numbered, weighed, divided? Well, in Acts chapter 17, verse 27 says he's not far from any one of us so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope. I like that word, grope for him. We know what it means to grope. In the middle of the night, you're trying to find something, you're groping. And find him, though he is not far from each of us. That is a perfect example. How many of you, if you wear glasses, how many of you have ever groped for the glasses that you set beside your bed at night? You know where they are. They're right there beside you. You thought you're doing this and hitting your hand and everything, right? They're right there. Well, that's what God is, right? God's not far away. But too often, we're just reaching right here. We can't see. We're not really looking. That's what we read about in Acts right there. But Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, we were supposed to repent. Well, the problem with Belshazzar was not what he had done wrong. It was his lack of repentance to try and fix what he had done wrong. And that judgment comes the same for him as it did for us. We can read that in 1 Thessalonians 5, also 2 Peter 3, lots of verses there that we could look at. But all of us will be numbered, weighed, and divided. And the unfortunate thing for Belshazzar is what he had, which was a lot, was taken from him right then and there. Where is our kingdom? Here? Or in heaven. If we're not careful, we get all worked up about the kingdom here, right? We get a little too focused on that. We have the feast. We bring out the good cups. <laughs> Instead, his focus should have been on that because it can all be over just like that. So the question, the statement, the topic, whatever you want to say, writing's on the wall. You know, writing on the wall says it's going to happen. So we're not for us. It's not for us to say, oh, this will never happen to me. I don't need to worry about it. It happened to Belshazzar, and he had control of a whole lot more than any of us do. But it's up to us to fix that. And so what I would invite any and all of you to do is if there needs to be any kind of fixing, anything that can be done, anything we need to do at all, we'd invite you to come while we stand and sing. As crimson glow, if you 
give your heart to Jesus, he will make it white as snow. Come 